Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 8, The Telltale Nicaraguan Election. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus. The Simpsons and modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Decapitate what we decapitate. Assume the position when we assume the position. And today I'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 8, The Telltale Head, which first aired on February 25th, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about the Nicaraguan general election of 1990, which was held on the exact same day as the Telltale Head first aired, February 25th as well. Excellent. Probably so, worth noting at this stage that we're both having trouble saying the word Nicaraguan at the moment. Yeah, that'll be fun when it comes to my bit. Yes. Uh, well, it'll be doubly fun when it comes to editing for you. So, uh. yeah. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can send us an eel to podcast at <laughs> retrospecticus.org. And you can at us on Twitter. We are underscore retrospecticus. Excellent. Uh, just before we get started, we'd uh, like to mention, uh, not from the point of view of crowing, but also from the point of view of crowing, uh, <laughs> that we won a fantastic uh, Simpsons-themed pub quiz last night uh, at the Ship and Mitre pub in Liverpool, which is an excellent pub. The quiz was really well put together, uh, and our team, which was called Cyanide, a loving tribute to Poison, uh, won the day, which is even better. And I want some top trumps, which I completely pocketed and I'm not sharing with the other members of my team. <laughs> yeah, we teamed up with Tim Worthington from Looks Unfamiliar. And yeah, we smashed it. We did, we did. Which is a good time to mention that Tim Worthington from Looks Unfamiliar has a new book out, Can't Help Thinking About Me, which I have uh, recently bought and I'm ploughing through. It's fantastic, uh, but he is trying to make a character in the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla cartoon canon by repeatedly mentioning him and i just want to be very clear on this brock is not canon that joke will mean nothing to anybody except him but you know that, that's that's who we are and that's what we do yes so telltale head yes so the telltale head season one episode eight uh, air date february 25th 1990 all of which i've said before but i know what you're asking gareth what was the uk number one when that episode aired well we have a new number one hooray Unfortunately, it's dubbed Be Good to Me by Beats International, which I've already oh. talked about. Uh, you, as you can probably tell, I'm not really looking at the charts in advance. And we had that, that warning from history a few weeks ago when we noticed a, a, a song got up rather than down. Mm -hmm. yep. I just forgot that that was a thing that could happen. So, yeah. so there we go. Uh, at number two, we have Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. At number three, we have Michael Bolton. I'm just not talking about that. So yeah. we're going to go all the way down to number eight where we meet a sprightly young beat combo called the Stone Roses. Oh, yeah. They're with Elephant Stone, which is uh, one of my favourites of theirs. It was actually a re-release. It was originally put out in 1988 when it failed to make the charts. And that version, although I'm not entirely sure about the re-release, was produced by Peter Hook from New Order. Nice. So they re-release it after the debut album came out. Elephant Stone wasn't on the debut album. So this, this was just a way of keeping keeping the hype up while they went away and recorded their second album. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Which took them about five years. If yes, yeah. yes. The debut album was hailed as the second coming. No, not that one. That came five <laughs> years later. Uh, so this is uh, being released after the original singles from that album and after the single Fool's Gold, 
which came out the previous November. So it's just a really weird discography if you look at the Stone Roses discography. All their singles come out about three or four times, especially when, uh, was it Silvertone Records were trying to uh, milk the back catalogue while they were in the middle of that big court case? Mm. Uh, but anyway, all of all of this is things we might discuss later. Why don't I actually discuss The Simpsons? Yes. Uh, the US viewership, there was a Nielsen rating of 15.2. It was the second highest rated Fox show of the week after perennial front runner married dot 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 with children. Mm. Production number was 7G07. Uh, the chalkboard gag was, I did not see Elvis. No. Although certain observers have said... If you freeze frame it, you can see one line where he wrote, I did see Elvis. Okay. So there we go. What <coughs> to think on there? Now, is that alluding to this idea that Elvis faked his own death and various people have claimed to have seen him? Is, is that what that's on about? I, I would imagine so, yes. Although I would have thought all of that calmed down a bit by 1990. I suppose you can't, can't put a good conspiracy theorist off. So. No. When did Elvis die? 77? 77, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not long enough for conspiracies to die down. No. <laughs> good point, good point. Mm-hmm. So the couch gag is the same one from Bart the Genius, where Bart gets flung into the air and comes down in front of the television during the producer credits. Mm-hmm. So, what actually happens? Well, we join Homer and Bart with the head of a statue and an angry mob. Our first of the series, but not, by an awfully long way, our last. And Bart begs for his life at the foot of the decapitated statue by telling the story of how all this came to be. A story that lasts about 23 minutes and 5 seconds. (laughs) The previous Sunday morning, Bart somehow gets the family to church, confiscating Bart's various fun makers on the way and prizing Homer away from his football game. Bart bedevils his Sunday school teacher with very specific questions about heaven, whilst Homer smuggles in a radio to check on the progress of his wager. Anyway, on the way back, Bart passes a cinema playing Space Mutants 4, which Marge will not let him see. Back home, Homer is more than happy to lend him the money for a ticket, and off he goes. Whereupon he sees the worst kids in town, Jimbo, Dolph and Kearney, sneaking in, and takes them up on their invitation to join them. When they're inevitably slug out, Bart joins the bullies in their antics, albeit accidentally at first, as his squishy ordering distracts Arpu for long enough that the others are able to shoplift to their heart's content, with them later thanking Bart for helping them get a five-finger discount. Mm. Yes, a five-finger discount. Yeah. Not the four-finger discount that Jimbo would later enjoy in Marge Be Not Proud. Yeah, exactly. Bit of, bit of Mandela effect there. When mm. I saw that, I assumed he was going to say four-finger discount, and he doesn't. Yeah. They, they, they hadn't got quite... Worked out that their own characters, the characters that they drew, have only got four fingers. I suppose it was early days in terms of scripting, but yeah, that, that is a basic design note, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Of, of course, later, in a later episode, God appears and God has five fingers. Yes, as does uh, as does Jesus. Oh, okay. When Jesus appears. Uh, and as does Katy Perry. But then Katy Perry, of course, appears in live action. So uh, we're a long way away from that. And, yeah. and in some ways, may we never reach it. But uh, Katy Perry probably wouldn't have even been born when this episode first went out. That's something we should probably look up. Yeah. Or perhaps one of our uh, readers would like to send us an eel that uh, yes, explains yes. whether Katy Perry was alive or not at this yes. stage. Was, was Katy Perry a sentient being in 1990? <laughs> uh, right, in returning to the episode, uh, <laughs> they then throw rocks at the statue of Jebediah Springfield and... Lie in the grass watching the clouds, which is a bit of a switch. Bart sees a cloud that looks like a headless Jebediah Springfield statue and is goaded into performing the act that night. 
After a pep talk where Homer tells him that being popular is the most important thing in the world and that it's all right to do stuff you think is pretty bad so other kids will like you better. <laughs> I love that. The, 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 the morals there. It's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's sort of, that's not just a flawed character. That's a character that's almost missing his head. <laughs> See what I did there? I, I like it. I like it. Anyway, post this act... He begins to realise the gravitas of the situation, as the town is somewhat less jubilant. He's also disturbed to hear that Jimbo and his gang have swerved on their assertion that the statue should lose its head, and have sworn violence on the perpetrator. When even Krusty the Clown demands the Hellion come forward, bribing his viewers with a free slide whistle, he decides to confide in Homer, who luckily realises that he's made a terrible mistake in giving Bart his earlier advice, and decides to stand with his son in the face of the mob. Bart eventually talks them down by noting that they were all taking their heritage for granted. And they replace the head, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. Yeah, that's um, fair enough. So there we go. Uh, the writers of that episode were... There was four credited writers, would you believe? Al Jean, Mike Reese, Sam Simon, and Matt Grading, all of whom we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. We have. So, on to the character debuts. And to be fair, there's a, a fair amount of them this time. So, strap in. We get Sideshow Bob. That's Robert Underdunk Terwilliger. With the wrong hair. He has an afro in this, as opposed to his... uh, I don't even know how to describe what Sideshow Bob's hair is like in later episodes. I can only really describe it as Sideshow Bob-esque. Well, it's it's sort of like a nuclear explosion. Yeah. Well, not so much a nuclear explosion. It's, it's, It's like when... When a building comes down, when it's being demolished, and you get all the plumes of rubble coming down, that's kind of what it looks like. That's that's a good descriptor, actually. I, yeah. I like that a lot. Uh, but anyway, he doesn't have that here. Uh, no, no, it's just a blob. Yeah. Uh, Krusty the Clown, I believe debuts in this one, although he could have been in an earlier one. Oh, once again, my research lets me down. He was in the shorts, anyway, so it's not, not technically a debut. And both of these characters are ones we should probably discuss when we get to Krusty Gets Busted. Mm-hmm. And that's yep. only in a few episodes' time now, yes. so I, I think we can move on. There's also Ms. Albright, the Sunday school teacher, who doesn't appear to have a first name. No. She does reappear, particularly uh, in the episode where Bart falls in love with Reverend Lovejoy's daughter. But there's really not much to say about her, which is odd for oh. a Simpsons character. <clears throat> you would have thought she's probably got a, a storyline in the comics or something like that. Um, no, no, but but I, I love her Sunday school lessons <laughs> when they're discussing who goes to heaven and who doesn't. <laughs> and I love the bit where Bart says, what if you got into, what if you're a really good person and you get into a fight and you lose your arm... When you die, will your arm be waiting in heaven for you? <laughs> and she goes, but for the last time, yes. <laughs> I think that's great. All these questions, all these questions. Is a little blind faith too much to ask for? Do you know, I'm starting to wonder, in fact, whether she has one of the best lines in Simpsons history in a later episode, which is, Ralph, Jesus did not have wheels. <laughs> that is a good one. There's also... Apu Nahasapima Petalon. Pass. Mm. We'll, uh, we'll come back to this at some stage. Yeah. Uh, but, but now that's a, that's a pretty toxic subject. So yeah, exactly. So we need to be uh, troubling that one. And I don't think two white guys from England have got much to say about that. So, uh, no, yeah. No. Yeah. We'll, we'll move on. We will discuss it when we get to some more Apu-centred episodes. Um, but, Maybe. Uh, for now. Uh, Reverend Lovejoy. Yay. Hooray. 
That's uh, manna from heaven, if you'll forgive the turn of phrase. Uh, Reverend Timothy Lovejoy is a pastor at the First Church of Springfield, a fittingly faulty moral compass for the warped town. He moved to Springfield in the 70s and was ready to do the Lord's work, but Ned Flanders' constant need for biblical advice, approval and or shame chipped away at him to the point where his only joys in life are getting one over on Flanders and playing with his model trains. As he will later explain to Marge, I just stopped caring. Fortunately, by that time, it was the 80s and no one noticed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, his devotion to his faith is often questionable, forsaking his God on a number of occasions, most memorably on seeing the leader's UFO in The Joy of Sect, and even made up a Bible passage to shut Lisa up in Whacking Day. Um, <laughs> there's also the, the, the point where he advises that Marge divorce Homer. Yeah, yes. Uh, Marge then protests and says, well, isn't that against the Bible? And he says, have you ever read this thing? Mm-hmm. Technically, we're not allowed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, his most uh, recent memorable moment was getting far too into his disguise as a goth during a casino heist in season 26, episode 16, Sky Police, which I do recommend. That's actually not a bad episode. Oh, um, oh wow. And with that done, bring on the bullies. Yes. So, Corky James Jones better known as Jimbo, is a good-looking rebel who plays by his own rules and is known for his iconic knitted hat, one to cover his bald patch, and skull t-shirt, known for chafing him when attractive teenage girls are abroad. He appears to be from a rich family and once ran for mayor with the campaign slogan Tough on Nerds, Tougher on Dorks. (laughs) I don't remember that one. Kearney Jeezwitch is possibly the oldest student at Springfield Elementary at 29 years old. (laughs) He has been married and divorced and has two sons, at least one of whom is also attending Springfield Elementary. (laughs) However, he is also seen needing a fake ID to purchase liquor in much a poo about nothing, by which time his age had already been established. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. Yes. And finally, Dolphin Starbeam... This moniker was given to him in issue 75 of the Simpsons comic, where it was revealed he is the son of hardcore hippies. Now that, to me, that, that's oh, expanded yeah. universe. That is. And that runs contrary to his dad, who we see beating Homer up in the Homer They Fall. Yeah. In fact, all of the bullies' dads are seen inexplicably looking the same and dressing the same as their sons. Yes, yes. Although it is funny. So, yeah, it is. It, frankly, it is. it's explicable if something in a comedy is funny, I would say. But, so. but, but, but that's, that's how cartoon parents work if, if if they're a sort of side character then the parent has to look exactly like the child exactly because otherwise how do you know it's their parent yeah exa- exactly and Milhouse's parents pretty much look like their brother and sister but uh, mm, we'll, have to, we'll just have to excuse that <laughs> I'm from Norfolk I can't say anything about that <laughs> uh, so he's also been named on screen as Dolph Shapiro okay so there we go that's, that's possibly a bit more Uh, in keeping. He's the least well-fleshed-out of the bullies, to the extent that his name isn't even established until season four's Camp Krusty. That's the Dolph bit, obviously, not the Starbeam stroke Shapiro uh, thing. The rest, as we've just heard, is essentially anyone's guess. He's Jewish, and that's about all we know. Apparently there's been some criticism of the writing staff for not giving him a proper backstory, but I actually find it quite reassuring that there's still minor characters that haven't had their own full-focus episode. When you mm. consider how bad some of them have been, like the Ken Brockman episode, it's you know there's no need to. I think you lose a bit of the magic if you fill everybody in. Yeah, you don't need to give absolutely everyone a backstory. I mean, I mean, backstories for minor characters can be 
opportunities to be creative and inventive, but I don't think a minor character loses anything because they haven't had a backstory. No, not so. at all. Not at all. This is, I believe, the first mention of Jebediah Springfield. Again, I, I did such minimal research for this. <laughs> I really ought to take this more seriously. But he's he's one for later because he, he arguably gets his own focus episode when we get to uh, Lisa the Iconoclast. That's right. I think is in season six. So uh, It's one of the good ones anyway. Yeah, yeah. I'll be honest with you, I've not seen this episode very much at all. It's probably the one in season one that I've seen the least. Okay. So in terms of sort of a personal connection to it, I don't don't really have much to much to say. Um, it was perfectly serviceable when I watched it back. It's uh, it's probably one of the the better ones from season one, I would think. It's it, it's it's all right. There's there's a few things which, for me, make it stand out, and that's the activities that the bullies are doing. So there's a bit where they're sneaking into a cinema. And there's a bit where they're just plain stealing. So things like that. Again, you probably wouldn't have seen that that much on TV. Can you can you think of a sitcom from like the 80s or 90s where a character just goes into a shop, nicks something and then leaves again? Only in very special episodes. Right, okay. And, and only... Uh, they would have to have been caught and they would have had to have been... Um, Oh, yeah, they would have had to have had their comeuppance, as it were. Absolutely. There, there's no comeuppance for the bullies in this. No, no, there, There's absolutely all. none. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it does happen. Yeah, exactly. People get away with things. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's another example of The Simpsons being more more true to life than a lot of the things that were being presented on television at the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Homer is not a font of morality like like most TV dads were at the time. That's what makes him much more funny and much more relatable. Yes, and I did definitely like that he realised that his advice was the key error that led to Bart kind of going and, and uh, decapitating the statue. Uh, and that's why Homer then kind of redeems himself by standing with Bart uh, in the face of the angry mm. mob. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was quite exactly. good. Homer is not in full jerk-ass Homer mode, and, and indeed won't be for another ten seasons. No. So uh, um, still, still a spark of good in him there. Yep. Would you like some digi-knows? Yes. Okay. This first one's really obvious, to be honest. I, I don't <laughs> even know why I'm, I'm quoting this as a digi-know. Um, so, in fact, maybe we'll call this a you did know. Um, <laughs> you did know that when Bart wakes up in bed with the head next to him, it's a, an echo of the Godfather's iconic horse's head scene. Mm-hmm. That was pathetic. I've, I've got to get better at this. Um, the name of the episode and the scene where Bart hears the head talking to him are references to Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. That will be referenced again in Season 6, Episode 2, Lisa's Rival, but Edgar Allan Poe himself will next be referenced in Season 2, Episode 3, Treehouse of Horror. Ah, yes, it's the raven, isn't it? Yes, yes. And finally, this is the first time we hear Smithers declare his love for Mr Burns. Yes, now that's that's quite a key character trait of Smithers, and they got that in... Very early. Yeah, yeah, so, earlier than yeah. I remembered. I, I didn't think any of this sort of developed until around season three, you know, with him being a, a toady up until that point, but but not a burns asexual. Mm. Um, overcome with emotion when the uh, statue's head is replaced, Burns says, I love you, Smithers. And Smithers says, the feeling is more than mutual, sir. So actually, that's the other way around to how it usually goes. But, um, but there we go. It is, yeah. So that was the telltale head. Mm-hmm. And now, Nicaragua. Yes, okay. So, after years of civil war, Nicaragua 
held a general election on February 25th, 1990, same day as the Telltale Head first aired. So, during this story, I'm going to be mentioning quite a few places in Central America, so I thought I'd start by going over where everything is. Central America is a snaky landmass, the proper term for it being an isthmus, that links North and South America. Starting to the north is Mexico. South of Mexico is Guatemala, which has both a Pacific and Atlantic coast. Snugly fitting in between Mexico and Guatemala is Belize, which is on the Atlantic. South of Guatemala lies El Salvador on the Pacific coast, and Honduras on the Atlantic, although there is a little bit of Honduras on the Pacific coast. Directly south of Honduras is Nicaragua, which spans from Pacific to Atlantic. Then south of Nicaragua, there's Costa Rica, which does the same thing. Following that, there's Panama, and then you're into Colombia and South America. So at this point, you might reasonably be asking, why are there so many small countries all jammed into one isthmus? Well, let's take a quick look at the history of Central America. Before Europeans arrived, it was inhabited by the indigenous people of Mesoamerica, most notably the Mayans and Aztecs. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and from that point on, the Spanish conquered most of the Americas, including Central America. That must have been on the subsequent voyage to when he, you know, discovered America. <laughs> the one that Alison Taylor mentions in Lisa's Rival. Ah, yes. Most of Central America, from Chiapas, which is now part of Mexico, in the north, to Costa Rica in the south, were run by Spain as the Kingdom of Guatemala. So the whole lot is just run as one administration, essentially. Oh, okay. This was the status quo until 1821, when on the 15th of September of that year, independence from Spain was declared. So that date is used as an independence day for most Central American countries. The United Provinces of Central America was formed. It immediately ran into problems, as Guatemala was invaded and occupied by the Mexican Empire. The next year, Mexico became a republic, and its forces left Guatemala. So it wasn't until 1823 that the United Provinces of Central America was fully formed. And it didn't last very long. Civil war broke out in 1838, largely due to ideological differences between liberals and conservatives. And by 1842, the Union was completely gone, and each state was an independent country. More or less as we have today. Various attempts were made to form new unions over the 19th century, but they all ended in failure. So on to Nicaragua. Since independence from the United Provinces, during the 19th century, control of Nicaragua switched between liberals based in the city of Leon and conservatives based in Granada. That's Granada in Nicaragua, not in Spain. Possibly the strangest incident during this time was something that became known as the Walker Affair. In order to gain control of the country, the Liberals enlisted the help of the San Francisco-based mercenary going by the name of William Walker. You know, sort of guns for hire type guy. In 1855, Walker and a small band of armed Californians sailed to Nicaragua, fought their way through to Granada and took control of it. Now you might be thinking, fair enough, he did the job that he was brought in to do. But in 1856... Walker declared himself president of Nicaragua, made English the official language, and reintroduced slavery. It took a combined force from neighbouring countries to oust him in 1857, and then the Conservatives took over. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, just, I just find that amazing. It's, it's, I was like, yep, yep, I'll, I'll help you take control of the city. Right, I'm president now. Right, everyone's speaking my language and we're bringing slavery back. That's ridiculous. I mean, you've got to admire the uh, the chutzpah 
I uh, suppose so. But certainly not the return to slavery. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It really should be laughing about it because, you know, thousands of people died trying, trying to get the country back. Anyway. So in 1893, a liberal revolt forced the Conservatives from power. And in 1909, the United States got involved, but in an official capacity this time. They were exploring the idea of building a canal to link the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, a canal that would later be completed in Panama, of course. See whichever episode we did on the Panama Canal, I can't remember. (laughs) An armed rebellion against the Liberal government was taking place, and the US was keen to support it. The trigger for US involvement was the execution of two Americans accused of planting a mine in the San Juan River, an attempt to destroy a government ship, although it wasn't until 1912 when they actually invaded. They would remain in the country to support the Conservative government until 1925. After they left, yet another war between Liberals and Conservatives broke out. In 1927, the two sides reached a peace deal, and the US Marines returned to the country to restore order and oversee the next election. At least one man objected to the peace deal, one General Augusto Cesar Sandino. He led a guerrilla war against the government and the US Marines. After various pressures, which including Sandino's guerrilla war and the Great Depression, the Marines left in 1933. The Americans put Anastasio Somoza Garcia in charge, and they trained up a National Guard. The next year, this National Guard apprehended and executed Sandino, paving the way for Anastasio Somoza Garcia to become president. He would start the Somoza dynasty, but would rule the country until 1979. Franklin D. Roosevelt said of him, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. You know, nicely summing up American attitudes to uh, Central America. The Somozas have really annoyingly inconsistent names, as we shall discover. So Anastasio Somoza Garcia's rule would come to an end in 1956, when an assassin shot him in the chest at a party, which must have been a hell of a thing to witness, because um, there was a gunman there at this party who shoots him, then everyone else pulls out their guns and shoots the assassin. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Mark of a good party, isn't it? It's, uh, I suppose yeah. so. Okay, so so he was succeeded by his son, Luis Samosa de Baile, I think that's how you pronounce that, who ruled until he died of a heart attack in 1963. He was followed by his younger brother, Anastasio Samosa de Baile. So when people talk about Samosa, they're always talking about him. Right, okay. Despite the, the fact that there were many other Samosas. There were, there were. But, but they talk about the last one of the dynasty. So the younger Samosas rule was plagued by corruption and a general contempt for the population. In 1972, an earthquake devastated the capital, Managua. Foreign aid donations poured in and Samosa embezzled most of the money. And his stance on education can be summed up with one quote. I don't want an educated population. I want oxen. <laughs> It's lovely, isn't it? Oh, dear. Mm. In fact, I've got to stop laughing at all of this stuff. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's just so preposterous. Yeah, pretty much. So during Samosa's rule, opposition to him grew. The opposition took the form of the Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional, or FSLM, or the Sandinista National Liberation Front in English. And the group took their name from General Augusto Cesar Sandino. Over the course of the 60s and 70s, the Sandinistas would become more powerful, engaging in guerrilla tactics and hostage-taking. In 1974, they went so far as to take government hostages at the Ministry of Agriculture, even killing the minister in the process. Although the activity of the Sandinistas continued into the late 70s, January 10, 1979, saw an event which would see the tide turn against Samosa. 
The editor of the newspaper La Presna and leader of the Democratic Union of Liberation, Pedro Chamorro, was assassinated. The government were blamed, and it led to rioting and a general strike against the government with the aim of removing Somoza from power. August saw another hostage taking by the Sandinistas. They managed to hold the whole of the Nicaraguan Congress hostage, which is over a thousand people, like everyone in the Nicaraguan Congress. Not, not that Nicaragua has you know, a thousand congressmen. Among them were members of Somoza's family. Somoza agreed to pay a half million dollar ransom and several Sandinista prisoners were released. As 1979 went on, the power of the Sandinistas increased. Somoza's National Guard implemented martial law, and this resulted in an event that contributed to Somoza's downfall. In June 1979, the American journalist Bill Stewart was in Nicaragua to cover what was the unfolding revolution. National Guard soldiers ordered his car to stop and for the occupants to get out. Stewart obliged and presented his ID to the soldier. Despite Stewart having permission to be there, the soldiers ordered him to the floor. They then kicked him in the ribs and shot him in the head. Meanwhile, his cameraman was filming and the footage made it to American TV news. It was broadcast throughout the US and with it, any sliver of support that Somoza might have had from the USA disintegrated. Somoza resigned on June 17th. His successor relinquished his position and left power to the recently formed Hunter of National Reconstruction. The Hunter consisted of representatives from various opposition groups, including Daniel Ortega from the Sandinistas and Violeta Barrios de Chamorro, wife of the murdered Pedro Chamorro. Meanwhile, Somoza fled to Miami with millions of US dollars. He basically raided the treasury before he left. He was refused entry by President Jimmy Carter, so instead he went to Paraguay where both eyelash implants and exiled dictators are legal. However, Somoza didn't last long in Paraguay. A Sandinista commando team tracked him down, spent six months following him, and on the 17th of September 1980, fired a rocket-propelled grenade at his car. It was a direct hit, and Somoza, along with everyone in the car, died instantly. Somoza's body was so badly burned that he had to be identified through his feet. So, you know, if you're going to take out a ruthless dictator, that's the way to do it. Yeah. I'm not sure why they had to follow him for so long if they were just going to blow his car up. Uh, because they needed to know what his routine was. Oh, so right, they needed right. to know when he was going to be in his car um, and where. And that, you know, to get in a position and everything. Ah, I see. I was thinking it was more in keeping with a sniper job. Well, it's not dissimilar because they had to be pretty accurate with it. Because they were thinking, oh, what if he's driving around in an armoured car? If the car's armoured, you can't shoot at it straight on you have to shoot him from the side and it's a lot harder to hit a car if it's moving it's a lot harder to hit it in the side than it is to hit it in the front so anyway you know a suspiciously large amount about assassinating people with rpgs Uh, is there anything you should be telling me about this am i am i harboring a criminal no no I, i i just think it's amazingly over the top way of assassinating someone they could have you know they could have sniped him they could have crept up on him and stabbed him or something. Poison's big these days. Yeah, poison, anything like that. Just RPG, car in flames. It's just, it's, it's, it's really OTT. Anyway, back to, back to Nicaragua. So with this new hunter in control, they set about making improvements to the country in areas such as infrastructure, social justice, women's rights, and most famously, literacy. Thousands of teachers were recruited, and in just six months, the illiteracy rate was brought down from over 50% to 12%. Big win for the Sandinistas there. That's, that's very big. Mm. However, things went south very quickly. 
the non-Sandinistas in the junta feared that the Sandinistas were taking the country in the same direction as Cuba. Meanwhile, former National Guard members and those sympathetic to the old Somoza regime formed armed counter-revolutionary groups. These groups would come to be known as the Contras, as in against. Yeah. Really. I remember that term. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And in case you're wondering, there there was a video game called Contra, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with Nicaragua. It's like set in the year 2600 or something. Yeah. It is a it's a side-scrolling uh, shoot 'em up, which. Uh, on the NES, at least, was legendarily difficult. Mm-hmm. But the the name Contra was actually banned in Europe because of the things around the Contras. Yes, um, I remember. So it was, it's called Probotector. That's right. That's right. And and it's and and you're not fighting as a person. You're fighting as a robot. Yes. 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 Anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the side-scrolling shooter show. <laughs> well, we still haven't done the one-on-one beat-em-up. Uh, no, we haven't. Cast. We haven't. These these have all got to get aired somewhere. Yes. Where was I? So, Nicaragua. So, 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 so Nicaragua. Non-Sandinistas in the Junta feared that Sandinistas were taking the country in the same direction as Cuba, and the Contras formed. So, in the face of the Contra threat, the Sandinistas declared a state of emergency, and this state of emergency was to last six years. That's a long time for an yes, emergency. Yes, and it, and, and it's and it's a it's a quite well established way of suspending civil liberties. Um, the Contras, I think, at one point introduced conscription, and it was rather forcibly and unpleasant, and they sort of took took children away from their families, that sort of thing. So at this point in the story, the stage is set for yet another civil war, this time between the ruling Sandinistas, led by Daniel Ortega, and the rival counter-revolutionary forces known as the Contras. Ortega would go on to win the 1984 presidential election, which they had anyway, Nicaragua became the staging ground for another proxy war as part of the Cold War, after President Reagan declared an embargo against the Sandinista government, and the Sandinistas in turn turned to Cuba for help. So there were people in the junta who wanted the country to be non-aligned, you know, to not get involved in the Cold War. But you could argue that Reagan kind of forced Ortega's hand because, you know, if, if the States has got an embargo on you, you've got to go somewhere for help. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, and now I need to introduce a country that will seem like it has nothing to do with any of this. Iran. Ah, now, you say that, but I remember there being an Iran-Contra affair. Yes, yes there was. So it will all make sense very soon. Before the Islamic Revolution, the US was the biggest supplier of arms to Iran. Following the revolution, students stormed the American embassy in Tehran and held 52 Americans hostage. This was deeply embarrassing for the Carter administration, who responded by placing an arms embargo on Iran. Carter would go on to lose the 1980 election to Ronald Reagan in a landslide, who pledged to keep the embargo going. Around this time, Iran was in dire need of weapons, because in September 1980, they were invaded by Iraq, which started the Iran-Iraq war. So although the states was officially banned from selling arms to Iran, the CIA considered selling them covertly, And that's just what they did. It started when a group of Americans were taken hostage by Hezbollah in Lebanon. CIA sold weapons to Iran in return for Iran helping to free the hostages. As the 80s went on, the sales increased. And we're not just talking rifles, we're talking anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, that sort of thing. You you know, big hardware. And the CIA was selling the weapons to Iran at an over-inflated price. Some of the funds from these weapon sales were diverted to the Contras. 
That was also technically illegal under US law, as it was prohibited by a piece of legislation called the Boland Amendments, which made the sale of arms to the Contras illegal. Well, I'm oversimplifying it, but there we go. These dodgy dealings were exposed after a CIA plane laden with arms was downed in Nicaragua. This set off a chain of events which saw several members of the Reagan administration, including Colonel Oliver North, go on trial. That kind of weakened the Contras a bit because their arms deals were rumbled, essentially. So with the Contras weakened, the stage was set for the 1990 election, which took place on February 25th. It was contested between the incumbent Daniel Ortega and Violeta de Chamorro. So they were allies a few sentences ago. I assume something has gone sour. Ah, yes. Now, they were part of the initial junta of national reconciliation. And the idea of that was to take in all opposition groups, everyone who was opposed to Somoza. But there were ideological differences. The Sandinistas ended up becoming Leninist and sort of going the way of the Soviet Union. And the non-Sandinistas just didn't want that at all. So, yeah, that's... That's where the split comes from. Before the election, Reagan told Chamorro that the embargo would only be lifted if she won. And the election was far from non-controversial, with plenty of accusations of intimidation levelled at the Contras. Chamorro did indeed win, and became president. However, rather than the country descending into civil war again, the Sandinistas accepted the result and went into opposition. Following this, the centre-right were in power until 2006, when Daniel Ortega once again became president. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Uh, as of 2018, he remains in power to this day. So there we are, a potted history of Nicaragua. I mean, there's so much I didn't fit in. So if you're listening thinking, well, what about... Uh, don't worry, I know there's so much more to the story, you know, especially the Iran-Contra affair. One of the interesting things about the Iran-Contra affair was that someone in the US State Department, his last name was Poindexter. <laughs> And I know that the Simpsons use it as an insult of, of, of anyone who is smart. And I've looked up a picture of him, and he does look like a nerd. <laughs> is he the dud? Oh, yes, he, he does look like the dud, actually, yeah. <laughs> ah, excellent. So, that was Nicaragua. Mm. And before that was the Telltale Head. And next week, uh, another episode of The Simpsons, another, uh, another happening. Yep, and another thing from history. Excellent. Haven't okay. quite decided what yet. <laughs> If you do want to get in touch with us, uh, you can eel us at podcastretrospecticus.org uh, or you can tweet at us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we can't. Remember to tell us if Katy Perry was live on the 25th of February 1990. Yes. Until next time, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Oh, leave us a review on iTunes, please. Bye. Yeah, but only if it's five stars. <laughs> yep, indeed. Bye.